Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and my guest today is Stephen Collis, the author of a new novel based on a true story called Praying with the Enemy, published by Shadow Mountain in the States. I quote from the publicity, A captured American soldier during the Korean War attempts a daring escape for freedom with a North Korean soldier. And the story is complex. It's all tied up with the morality of war, the inter connection between law and religion in wartime and all sorts of fascinating stuff. Stephen Collis is a storyteller and also a law professor at the University of Texas School of Law and the faculty director of Texas's Beck Lachlan First Amendment Center and Law and Religion Clinic. Stephen is also a sought-after speaker on religion and law. Stephen, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Brent. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure for us to have you. Now, before we get to the new book, I've got to ask you, what is the Beck Lachlan First Amendment Center and Law and Religion Clinic? Well, they're, they're, the, the center is a bigger enterprise. We serve the entire University of Texas and, and really the entire nation. Uh, we're the premier and only academic center in the United States focused on scholarship and academic pursuit of the freedoms found in the United States Constitution's First Amendment. Part of the center is our law and religion clinic at the University of Texas Law School. And there we have law students work pro bono for free on um, matters involving religious liberty for people who otherwise would not be able to find representation. Yes, for New Zealand listeners uh, and uh, folk who are outside the United States, why is the First Amendment so important? Well, that's where in our constitutional structure, the freedoms of speech, religion, press, assembly, the right to petition the government, that's where those freedoms are written down and protected. And so anytime government infringes on any of those freedoms, there's at least some protocol for how how limited government is and what it can do when it infringes on those freedoms. Mm. One of your interests, I know, is the connection between law and religion. But I wonder what is the connection between law and religion? Well, it gets very, very complicated. I'll, I'll try to sum it up in, in a simple sentence. The, the, uh, the, the project of religious liberty law is figuring out how do people of very different religious beliefs live alongside one another in peace? That is the challenge of religious liberty law. And, and I, I don't know about all the religious diversity in New Zealand, but I do know that in the United States, we have one of the most di religiously diverse countries in human history. And the challenge then is how do we all live alongside one another uh, without repeating humanity's mistakes of the past and even the present of engaging in religious warfare. That's the project of religious liberty and trying to understand the relationship between law and religion. Yes, I wonder how the connection between law and religion has played out in U.S. history over the decades. Well, in a in a not consistent way, uh, you know, as you might expect. Uh, uh, so there's two components to it. Uh, at least in the United States, the way we think about it. There's the protection of the free exercise of religion. And then there's the protection against a state church. And but how we that's probably where the agreement ends. So uh, how we define state church gets complicated. Uh, as for the free exercise of religion, you know, for the first 140 years or so, we didn't do a good job as a nation protecting the free exercise of religion, at least if you were a minority religion. And then starting around the 1940s, that protection started to get far more robust. And it rem has remained pretty robust since then. But there is significant uh, flux and debate over precisely what the constitutional law should be to protect the free exercise of religion. And we have 
a constant ongoing debate about it. Mm. Well, we'll come on to the writing. I was going to ask you uh, how you find time to actually do all this writing, because this is the, is it the fourth book that you've written, I think? Uh, yeah, my fourth book, third published with Shadow Mountain. And how do you know, I find time in part because it's just a compulsion that I can't help. I love, okay. I love writing. Part of my education is that I have an MFA and a Master's of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. And I just stories are there and I, I have to tell them. That's part of it. Part of it is as a professor, you know, part of my job is I get paid to write. And so I spend I work on scholarship, but I also work on uh, writing books like this. Yes, and some of the books are non-fiction books, and some of the books are fiction. And this one's, well, sort of fiction. We'll come on and explore that in a minute. But uh, where do the stories come from, Stephen? A variety of places. Uh, Praying with the Enemy, my latest book, I found in a, I found an out-of-print memoir in the basement of a university library 20 years ago, written by one of the men that I was telling the story about. And I, you know, no one had ever heard of it. It, it had fallen. He had written it in the 1950s, and it had quickly gone out of print. And I just thought, one day I'm going to bring this story to life in a more robust way. And uh, other, my previous book, my immediate past release. Uh, was about five men in World War II who sacrificed themselves to save hundreds of others, despite being of uh, different religions and races. That one I found through, I was in a colleague's office one day, and he had a stamp on his wall from the 1940s, and it was a stamp commemorating these men who had sacrificed themselves. And again, I just thought, that's a story that needs to be brought to life. So... Yes, always, you, you never know where you're going to find them. No, you seem to be attracted, though, if I've got it right, to stories of heroism and bravery and courage. Am I right? Uh, I mean, that's how my that's what my last two books were about. Although I would argue, I guess I would say certainly that aspect of it is appealing in part because I think people enjoy those types of stories. But there's a common theme in at least three of my four books, and that is more one of of people of very different beliefs and backgrounds finding a way to live alongside one another and coexist without sacrificing who they are in their core i think that's probably more than anything what what appealed to me about at least my last three books yes and and wartime and periods of conflict and war heighten those tensions i suppose do they yeah i think that's right well especially if you're on opposing sides of a battle right i mean that was yep. the tension and praying with the enemy one mm. one man's a north korean soldier the other one's an american fighter pilot the chances of them wanting to help each other is not high, I would imagine. Well, and indeed, uh, should they help one another? And are they allowed to help one another un under the laws of their country and their s political systems? And we'll come on and deal with that, because this is what I found fascinating about the book. It threw up so many questions about moral conflict and, and what you do when you're uh, captured, uh, captured by the enemy and how far you go, how far you comply, what you do and how you conduct yourself. Um, does writing history in a non-fiction format, give you something that writing straight history doesn't? Yeah, the, the genre in which I'm writing, and this is where my creative background, my creative writing background comes in, the genre, and we call it narrative non-fiction or literary non-fiction. And the idea is you, you never want to stray from the facts. You don't want to take license with anything the way I did in my latest novel. When you're writing nonfiction, you've got to stay true to it. But narrative non-fiction, you're, you're not trying to adopt an academic tone the point at the end of the day is to be to provide entertainment to engage people so that they can read the book the way they might read a novel and so you have to you have to be conscious of pacing you have to be conscious of d character development you're not making things up the way you would in fiction but you're highlighting people's lives and, and you're engaging in syntax and sentence structure all the things that make for good 
fiction and reading, you're just trying to do it while telling a story that's 100% true. And that's the key to narrative nonfiction. Yes, I wonder if as a teacher, does it make, does writing nonfiction make history come alive for your students? Yeah, for sure. In fact, when I teach the law, one thing I, I, I work very, very hard to do is we, we try to bring cases to life for them. You know, some people find a legal case can be very boring and there's much, much truth to that. But the reality is at the base of it are people whose very lives and livelihoods are being affected who, you know, they can't sleep, they can't eat, they're, they're just filled with anxiety and trying to help students appreciate that and understand and understand it, I think is a key part of what I do. And my, my writing helps inform that. Now, uh, let's get on to the, the current novel, um, Praying with the Enemy. We've already talked a bit about it, and you say it's based, on a, it's based on a true story. How much information did you have about the two men in the story before you started writing? I had quite a bit about the American man because he's the one who had written the memoir about his experience. So it's I knew Ward, Ward Miller, is that right? Ward Miller? Ward, Ward Millar is how they Ward say Millar. it. Ward mm. Millar. yeah. I had, I had his, quite a bit of information about him, but not enough. I didn't have a lot about the Korean man, um, and I didn't have—I didn't know much about Ward's wife, who he was married at the time when he got shot down behind enemy lines. So, I needed to figure out more about her. I needed to figure out more about his family and and how this affected them, how it changed him. And then I really needed to find out what happened to the to the Korean man and his family. And so that was the, those were the big research tasks I was facing when I started the project. And how did you go finding, finding out about the Korean man? So I lived in Korea for a couple of years and I've, I, I, you know, I speak the language worse and worse every day, but enough. And uh, um, I had a great friend from law school who is just brilliant. And I, I reached out to her. She, she was a native Korean. She came to the United States for her schooling, but you know, her family and everything was still in the United or in Korea. And I asked her, I said, this is a shot in the dark. I've got a book here written in the 1950s. Can you just see if there's anything about him? I, my guess is we're not going to be able to find anything. She came back in less than a day and she had found a contact who knew his family, wow. who, who then uh, I was able to interview the family kind of indirectly through this third party contact. And uh, it was a movie director in South Korea who was making her own documentary about the story from the Korean man's angle. And so she connected me. Uh, he has passed away, but his wife, his widow, is in her mid to late 90s, was still alive. And I was able to ask a lot of questions and just learn so much more from their perspective. It was great. Well, because his story is absolutely amazing. I'm not going to spoil it for readers by by telling them what happens at the end, because it's, it's really very moving uh, indeed. But in, in what sense is this a book about, or in what sense is this a tale of two journeys, really? I, I mean, 100% is what it is, really. It's, you know, when you write, you've got your main plot, which in this case, I felt like you could sum it up as trying to escape <laughs> in an impossible circumstance, right? But you've got your subplots, and subplots are usually character-driven. And in this instance, the the one subplot was the the journey of Kim J. Pil, the Korean man, and his his faith journey and his moral dilemmas. And the other journey was uh, Ward Millar and and his journey along. His was kind of connected with his wife's. But mm. that's you know it's their two tales uh, together that I think hopefully bring the book together for readers. Yes, Mrs. Millar is fascinating, isn't she? Because she's the lady with the faith, if you can put it like that, initially at the book. She goes to Mass, uh, and uh, he and Ward, I think, struggles a bit with, with faith, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't initially see how quite how it works in reality. Am I right? I think that's right. Ward's view of the world was, 
he had reached a point where he felt there probably was some form of creator, whatever that means to him. But the notion that a being who put this vast universe and, and all the complexities of it together would, would would be listening to any of us, he just thought was was beyond is too implausible for him to embrace that. Right. And and you're right. Barbara, who's very charming, by the way, she just turned 97 and I was able to go interview her in her home, her daughter's home, actually, uh, was very faithful. Faith has always come very easy to her. She's still very faithful. At one point in the interview, she says, why on earth would anybody want to tell this story? Which made me chuckle. Why wouldn't they? Why yeah. wouldn't they? <laughs> Having lived it, I don't think she appreciates how just amazing it is. It is an amazing story. Now, how does it, we talked about the connection between law and religion, but I wonder how the connection between law and religion played out for Americans and uh, North Koreans in this, in this Korean War period. Well, you know, the big, the big way it played out was the North Korean regime, and this was true, I, I think, I don't want to say all communist regimes, because I don't know that I've studied them all, but certainly of most of them, the, one of the first things they do is to try to stamp out organized religion. Because the philosophy is that if you're not completely loyal to the party, if you put anything else above the party or in their view, quote unquote, the people, you can't be trusted. And so there was a massive oppression of religion in North Korea from between the time the communists took over and when they invaded the South and started the Korean War. So that played a huge role in this, and especially in Kim Jae-pil's journey, where he had to be very careful. He couldn't let anybody know that that he had religious beliefs, that he was devoted to something other than the party. He had been forced into the army uh, and, and trying to navigate that was very difficult for him. Yeah, so this is a story really about the difficulty of exercising faith or indeed freedom of conscience in a totalitarian system. How do you how do people exercise faith and freedom of conscience in a totalitarian system or do they? Well, I think they do. They Sadly, they have to do it in secret, and oftentimes they can't do it as robustly as they would like, right? I often tell people, you know, nobody can ever, at the end of the day, stop you from exercising your religion um, completely. But they can sure make it anxiety-ridden. They can sure make it so you don't get to exercise much of your faith, right? Um, and there's a grow. you know, you see this when people will say, well, you can have your religion, but you can't have it outside of your home or outside of your church. Well, for many people, that means, you know, lopping off a good 50% of their religious practice. And in the case of a totalitarian regime, it, it largely means you, you don't get to do much unless you do it in secret. And at any moment, somebody could come in and kill you for it. Yes. Do truth and law become casualties at wartime sometimes? Sometimes, yeah, I think for sure. Sadly. Mm. How do Ward and the North Korean soldier become unlikely allies without giving too much away of the story? That's a tough one if, uh, because I will end up having to give away too much of the story. Let's see here. <laughs> uh, they run a, I'll put it this way. They somehow meet up with, with each other in the mountains of North Korea in a, in a way that nobody would, ever ex would have expected. Mm -hmm. And okay. one thing I do emphasize in my afterword for the book is the parts of the story that seem the least believable probably or the least implausible are the parts that are most likely true, Yes, uh, including how they met up. Yes, and that raises interesting moral questions for the two of them, doesn't it? Because they're enemies of one another effectively, and yet they have the shared faith and bond in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, how, how does the book explore the moral tensions that the two men face? I spend a lot of time and energy trying to think through 
really their own personal faith crises, if you will. And in Ward's case, it's more, is there a God who will actually listen to me? And in Jay Pill's case, it's more a question of losing that faith because again and again and again, he's forced to do things and he's forced into an army to which he really just has no devotion and he wants to escape. Now, I don't think Jay Pill faced any type of moral dilemma of getting out of that army if he could have. Yeah. I think to him it was the North Korean army and what it was doing was immoral and unethical, and his hope was that they would be defeated. Uh, So for him, the challenge, though, was why did it appear for a long time that the heavens were silent when he was seeking help, right? Mm, yes. Yes, the book explores suffering really at a very deep level, doesn't it, for, for both men. And I wonder how you got inside the head of a, a combat soldier. I mean, the, the stories of the imprisonment, uh, the questioning, uh, the psychological tension are so palpable and so real. How much, how much research did you have to do for that? Uh, a lot of reading into books and writings of other soldiers and things they've experienced, but also um, Ward's memoir digs into a lot of that stuff. Okay. And so it, it was helpful to hear his own thoughts. There, There is a moment in the book, you may recall, where I have Ward writing a letter to his wife, kind of explaining his religious beliefs. And then that letter helps show his his spiritual journey throughout the book. Much of that, much of the ideas in that were from his memoir. I mean, those were ideas he was expressing, things he was worried about once he started on this this journey, if you will. I wonder how God's providence or God God being God's sovereignty, if you like, is in uh, is evident in the story. We see God fully in control of events, even horrible events, don't we? I don't know that I would go that far. Um, I, I mean, I don't know that I ever would state he's completely in control. But I, there is a moment where Ward Ward survives. Uh, not to hopefully I don't ruin the book for your readers, but I don't think it's a big. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that'll be a big secret if you read the back cover. Um, you know, Ward survives, but then he finds himself asking the question: Why did he survive when so many other pilots did not? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And what is it? What is the nature of God in in that? And and how does he work? And what are the mysteries of God that might explain that? And that's something that certainly Ward is. I think dealing with and asking about, and he certainly comes to the conclusion that there's meaning in everything. Uh, you know, it's a com- those are complicated questions. Theological, I mean, they've baffled theologians for millennia, right? True, true. yes. But your book throws them up. Uh, well, at least it did for me anyway, as I read. Um, I love the words of the chaplain near the end of, of the book. He says, God works, he says this to Ward, doesn't he, I think, God works in subtle ways in times of great stress, but in the quiet moments of our lives as well. Do you think, do you think that's true? I do, I do. And some of, that, some of that was from my own personal experience, right? I mean, if you're, if you're someone who takes divinity seriously and communicating with God seriously you, you, or, or recognizing the divine seriously, you, you realize that it's often in quiet moments and it takes a contemplation contemplative mindset and someone who can detach themselves from all the digital age that we live in and uh, to kind of experience those subtle moments with divinity. And, you know, I think that's part of where that was coming from. The experience with the chaplain was very real and very dear to Ward's family because he really did encourage Ward 
to make his faith more foundational than simply being based on having survived a traumatic experience, right? Um, and that really helped him form Ward for the rest of his life and and I think his children. Mm. Last question, uh, Stephen. How does faith transcend war or national boundaries? Well, I mean, you know, there I think I could I speak from my own experience. I guess I suppose faith can transcend everything. You know, it's not so much about what does this mortal experience pile upon us. It's how do we react to that in faith one way or another by by losing ourselves uh, in the divine. And I, you, I think this is actually one of the things that um, plagues modern Western culture, at least right now. It's everybody is in search for the self. And so to, to say people are selfish is too simplistic. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's more a notion that the only truth comes from the self. Everything is about pursuing the self. And yet what we, what we learn, I think, through many of the world's great religions and certainly through Christianity, is that uh, we find ourselves by losing ourselves in Christ or by losing ourselves in the service of others. And through that, we can transcend anything. And I think that would be true for war as much as any other hardship we have to deal with. Thank you very much, Stephen Collis, the author of this new novel from uh, Shadow Mountain in the States. It's called Praying with the Enemy. You will find it a fascinating read. It's certainly a gripping one. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Stephen, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.